0: You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 57 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Buschatz, and this is the show for June 2018. Um, at this stage, I probably don't even need to say it's another solo show. I think the show has sort of settled into a new format. Um, panels work really well for talking about Apple News, but when it comes to photography, I actually just want to have a conversation with you guys, um, rather than necessarily with a panel. So I'm not saying we'll never do a panel show, I'm not saying we'll never do interview shows, but I'm really enjoying this one-to-one conversation with the audience as opposed to a conversation among panelists. So um I hope you're enjoying this new style of show. If not, let me know. And if you are, let me know. I guess feedback please is what I'm saying. You can do that over at let us talk dot Anyway, last time it was a very probably the most um heart of my sleeve show I've ever done on any podcast, I think. Um uh, so I thought I'd um, switch gears again and go back to something much more factual, much more clean-cut, scientific, less opinionated. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to stick to this. There's no rules, right? This is my podcast. I can do what I like. But my thinking is sort of it will be fun to alternate between opinion episodes and factual episodes. And so since last time was very, very, very opinionated, um... Let's try and make this one nice and factual. So what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about image sensors. The actual heart and soul of every digital camera. And let's face it, we have an awful, awful lot of digital cameras in our lives these days. As I've said many, many times before, all a camera is at its most fundamental level is a device which focuses light onto some sort of light-sensitive material which has the ability to capture that focused image in some sort of permanent way. So initially, we pretty much always do it with lenses, right? That, that's how we focus the light. So we have a lens which focuses the light onto some sort of light-sensitive something, which then records the image. So initially, we used plates of metal coated with chemicals. Um, very, very initially, uh, Mr. Daguerre figured out that certain salts of mercury were light-sensitive. Um. This wasn't very healthy, um, which resulted in the phrase mad as a daguerreotypist, because, well, you had to heat the mercury. You, were, you had a bath of boiling mercury that was used to develop the metal sheets onto which the image was captured. So you were literally breathing in mercury vapours if you wanted to do photography in the early days, uh, so sort of, you know, the, the 1830s, 1840s, and that's not particularly healthy. Uh, thankfully, we discovered some new chemistry around salts of silver, which is a much, much, much healthier uh, process. And so, rather than smearing the salts of silver onto metal plates, we started to smear them onto, initially, glass plates, uh, which made them easier to make multiple prints from, because you couldn't make multiple prints and there were metal sheets. Um, then we discovered that we could use flexible transparent materials like cellulose film, Uh, And then you could roll up your, you know, your your thing coated in light-sensitive material. And so then we had the film cameras. And that was much, much, much more convenient than the massive slabs of glass. But ultimately, our cameras for a very, very long time, for most of the history of photography, our cameras were basically little chemistry sets. But in the last few decades, we, we initially slowly and now very, very, very rapidly have switched from chemistry sets to little boxes of electronics. Our modern cameras, whether they be in our phones, our point and shoots, or our DSLRs, or anything in between really, um, they are digital sensors. So what's going on is that we have some, what's sitting at the point where the image is focused, is some sort of electronic device which electrically records the light and converts it into ones and zeros that are digitally stored on some sort of medium and that is the heart and soul of all of our cameras. So let's look at that in a little bit more detail. Okay, so let's start with the basics. All of our digital sensors, pretty much, I think I'm safe to say all, I don't like being absolute, because there's always an exception somewhere. Someone has always invented one single weird camera that doesn't follow the rules. But in general, you should think of digital sensors, regardless of the actual technology at their core, as consisting of a two-dimensional grid of, individual light-sensitive elements, which we call pixels. So each light-sensitive element can record how much light hits it. And you put all of these into a massive big grid, and then you have yourself a sensor. And if you, you know, let's say your sensor is 10 by 10, then you have a 100-pixel sensor. So 10 across, you, know, you multiply them together. And generally speaking, we have a lot of pixels. And so the unit of measure is not individual pixels, but millions of pixels or mega pixels. So all you're doing with each pixel is measuring how much light is hitting that pixel. Not what color it is, or nothing else about the light. It's purely a measure of quantity. How many photons of light walloped into this little piece of image sensor since we started the exposure? So how do we get color images if what we're measuring is intensity, right? If all you know is how much light, what you have yourself is an inherently monochrome medium, which was also true in early chemical photography, right? It was these light-sensitive chemicals, generally speaking, picked up how much light was hitting them, not what colour of light. And colour photography took a long, long time to be discovered, and the chemistry is oh so far above what I understand of chemistry. Yeah, it's a low bar. Chemistry was never my strong point, but anyway... I diverge, I digress even. So how do digital cameras square this circle? So all we can measure is how much, but what we want is what colour it is and how much. Well, the answer is that we use, we put a grid of filters in front of the grid of pixels. And so those filters are multicoloured and the end result is that some of the pixels only get green light hitting them, and so they are recording how much green is present. Some of the pixels only allow red light, through, or some of the filters only allow red light through, so some of the pixels are recording how much red light there was. Some are recording how much blue light there was, that gives us RGB, red, green, blue, that's enough to reconstruct colour information. But in order to get nicer images, a lot of image sensors actually retain a small number of pixels as unfiltered pixels to get a really good measure of total intensity of light. And they they can be very helpful in low light and stuff like that. So depending on the manufacturer of your sensor, you will have a number of red, green and blue pixels and perhaps some intensity-only pixels that are picking up light of all the colors. And you might think that... Th- you know, the pattern will be straightforward. Or indeed, that there will be an exactly equal number of red, green, and blue pixels. But you'd be wrong on both counts, because through trial and error, through good old-fashioned engineering, it has been discovered that the ratio of the different colors can give you nicer images if it's not quite even. And different manufacturers will come up with different algorithms for figuring out exactly what the right pixel is, and, or sorry, what the right ratio is, and I couldn't even begin to go into the evil, complicated mathematics of why. And the other thing that I don't really want to go into because it will make my head explode uh, is the fact that if you make the grid too regular, uh, well, you end run into a really annoying problem where you have interference patterns. And so actually figuring out the shape of the grid is way more complicated than, you know, I would have guessed. I thought, oh, we just distribute the pixels evenly, right? You know, Even amounts of all three colors spread out evenly. That'll do the trick. It will, for a given value of doing the trick. But if you want really good images, you'll actually get much better results if you put way more thought and engineering into it than that. And so it's actually very complicated, is what I'm trying to say. Um, If we lived... Actually, I one more thing about that before I move on. So the fact that we can't detect everything about a single photon at the same time means that digital sensors are inherently fuzzy. There's an inherent fuzziness, right? So for a point in the real world, there's no one pixel that's picking up all the information about that point. So they are fuzzy. It's the only word I can really think of for it. Um, Which is why, if you ever look into the settings for converting raw sensor data into a usable image, you will find that there is always a sharpening setting. So if you just have your camera do the conversion automatically, that the camera is doing the sharpening for you. But there is import sharpening when you go from a raw image to an editable image, and that's to make up for the fact that the actual data is captured over a spread out area instead of all in one place. So, you know, there is import sharpening when you're coming from a digital sensor into an image editing app. And if the camera is doing the conversion from raw sensor data to an image then the camera's doing the sharpening. If you're doing it yourself, converting raw images into, into normal images using a photo editing app, then you probably have a slider to control that import sharpening. But the reason there is sharpening is because you have this grid of different pixels sensing different colors rather than individual pixels doing everything. Okay, another thing I need to say, regardless of how your digital sensor works, because there are multiple types, it's true to say... in an ideal world, the only thing that would cause an electrical signal inside a pixel would be a photon of light walloping into it. However, we do not live in such a world. I'm sure it comes as a surprise to no one. Uh, So there's all sorts of things that are causing electrical signals inside pixels that are not light. Um, A cause would be radiation. So there's all sorts of radiation out there that's walloping into those little electrons and making them do all sorts of things so the sun is blasting us with radiation all the time so we have solar radiation Uh, the earth's crust is full of radioactive elements Um, so there's radiation you know, you take a Geiger counter it's never silent so that's buffeting electrons around Uh, and in fact the entire universe is bombarding us with radiation so we have cosmic rays coming down walloping into our electrons and making them jiggle about But even if we were to, like, you know, go into a massive big lead lined room where we, you know, we stopped all the stuff from the sun and all the stuff from the universe and all the stuff from the earth, so we had lead on all six sides, even then, if we got rid of all the radiation, we would still have noise in our sensors because the other thing that makes electrons jiggle about is heat. Unless you're at absolute zero... Your photons are being at least a, not your photons. Your electrons are being jiggled about by heat, so-called thermal noise. So what this means is that and if you take any of our digital sensors and you completely block all light from hitting it and you make it record a signal, it will not record perfect blackness. It will record random noise, and it's coming from radiation and thermal energy and all that kind of stuff. So what that means is the more what you want to have is a really good signal to noise ratio so there is always noise but if you have lots and lots of photons then it's really really easy for the circuitry within the camera to tell the difference between the real signal you're trying to record i.e. the image and all of that noise that's ever present and always there but of course the less light, the less photons you get hitting each individual pixel the more noise you're going to get and um, there are different ways in which that can happen. So smaller pixels are more prone to noise and darker scenes are more prone to noise. And the other thing that will make noise worse, of course, is if you amplify the signal. So if there's very, very little light, the signal coming out is very, very weak. And so you end up having to turn up the game. Basically, you have to amplify the signal coming out of your digital sensor. And the level of amplification. Uh, amplification is we call the ISO because that was how we measured sensitivity back in the old film days but in modern modern digital camera sensitivity is just how much amplification do you do to the signal and so the more you amplify or the higher the ISO the more you make well you're amplifying everything signal and noise and so the signal to noise ratio is bad as when you amplify it you're amplifying the noise too. Anyway so all of this that I've just said now is general and generic. But our sensors, are not they don't actually all work the same at a fundamental level. So far I've described them as some sort of electronic thing that, elect- that photons of light bump into and they get recorded somehow. But there's actually more than one somehow that we can insert in there. Um, there's quite a few somehows. You know, in theory, if you look at all the literature, there's quite a few different approaches people have found. But in reality, there are two really, really big contenders here. They're two technologies that do 99.99% of the heavy lifting in this field. So let's let's have a look at those. So the first um, digital image sensors invented were so-called charge-coupled devices, or CCDs. Um, they're based off semiconductors, so we, would, we physicists would call them solid-state devices. They have no moving parts, hence solid state. Um, the way a charge-coupled device works is that you use photosensitive um, semiconductors, and every time a photon hits this material, it builds up a little bit more charge, an electron gets trapped. And so the more photons that hit this kind of material, the more electrons get trapped. In other words, you build up a charge. The more charge is in the pixel, the more light hit the pixel. The less charge is in the pixel, the less light hit the pixel. So the, hence charge couple devices. And so what you're doing is you're converting light to electrical charge, and then you're measuring the electrical charge to figure out how much light there was. So the way you would do it is you would empty all the pixels of charge let the light hit the sensor for your desired exposure time. Stop the light hitting the sensor and then read back the charge of each pixel. And that will then tell you how much light hit each pixel, hence you produce an image. So char- electrical charge is what you're using as your measure of how much light. Um, so CCDs were the first invented and they are still the creme de la creme. So if you go for your most high-end fancy-pants cameras, particularly video cameras, they will still contain CCDs because CCDs give you higher-quality images with less noise than the other technologies do. However, they're more expensive to make and more complicated to make. And although initially they were way, 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 way better quality than the competition, the distance, the gap has shrunk and so we can make image sensors with other technologies that are way way cheaper and are almost as good as ccdc say so actually today it's true to say that almost it is almost certain that every modern camera that you own does not contain a ccd it contains what we'll talk about next Um, Something else to say about a CCD, it has a feature that, it'll become obvious why I'm saying this in a moment, but a CCD captures the entire scene at the same instant. So it's much more like an old-fashioned photograph, whereas the other technology we're going to talk about is often read one line at a time, and that, that has side effects. Okay, enough teasing. So CCDs were first, CCDs are still best, They used to be way, way better than everything else. Now they're just a little bit better than everything else. And it is extremely unlikely that anything you buy today will have a CCD in it. Now, that's not true if you're going to specialist stuff like astronomical sensors. And I remember when you used to, you know, it was a real thing to choose between a CCD and a a CMOS. Yeah, I would have to cut out of the bag. CMOS is the other sensor type. And webcams came in both flavors even. But anyway, I digress. So, the other, the infinitely more popular technology today, as we record this in 2018, is complementary metal oxide semiconductor, or better known to everyone as CMOS. And CMOS sensors are examples of something called active pixel sensors, or APS. Uh, And that's because each individual little pixel is almost like a tiny little computer all to itself. Like the individual pixels have much much brains, which is quite different to a CCD. So each individual pixel has a light sensor, an amplifier, a noise cancellation circuit, and actually a whole bunch more electronics. In each individual little pixel. So each individual pixel in CMOS is almost like a camera all by itself. Except it doesn't do any focusing, it just sort of assumes that light hitting it is focused, I guess. So it's not quite a whole camera, but... There's a lot going on in each individual pixel, so they're not just dumb pixels; they're active pixels. They're all little teeny, 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 tiny computers. Um, if you're going to be really nerdy and nitpicky, CMOS doesn't actually describe the sensing of the light. CMOS describes the structure of the electronics that sit behind the thing that actually detects the light, which is something known as a photodetector. And a photodetector is another piece of semiconductor material, uh, but unlike the semiconductor material inside CCDs, it doesn't convert elect- or light into electrical charge, it converts light into electric current. So a CMOS sensor, the more current is being stimulated in the pixel, the more light is hitting that pixel. So again, it's an active technology because you're not sort of collecting photons for a certain amount of time. It's the more light hits it, the more the more current flows. So it's, it's a different type of sensor. Uh, something else that I've already hinted at is that with a CCD, the entire two-dimensional grid captures the same image at the same time, and it's all read out in one go. Many CMOS sensors, not all, but many CMOS sensors are read They scan the image line by line by line by line by line. And that can result in some very unusual distortions. The effect is called rolling shutter effect. And what it means is that things that are moving will get... They will have moved as the image goes from row to row to row to row to row. So if you're moving across the scene and the rows are being scanned from top to bottom... So imagine a speeding car is going left to right through the scene and you're scanning from top to bottom... Well, when you scan the very top row, the car is all the way to the left of the image. But maybe by the time you get to the bottom, the car is all the way on the right of the image. And so the effect will be that it looks as if someone has stretched the car into a diagonal. Which can be kind of a cool effect. Gives a nice sense of speed. Um, But if you have something that's spinning, rather than moving in a straight line, like, say, the blades in a helicopter, it results in the blades looking like weirdo boomerang things. Um, So a rolling shutter can have very strange effects. And that's caused by the fact that a lot of CMOS sensors are read out, are scanned effectively line by line by line by line by line. It's called rolling shutter effect. Um, so I've said that every single pixel inside a CMOS sensor is active. It's got its own little electronic brain, has an amplifier, noise cancellation, all this kind of stuffs is going on inside every single little pixel. So that sounds way more complicated than a charge couple device. And, well, it's more complicated in the sense that there's more going on, but strangely enough, it's actually cheaper to produce. Because of the d- nitty-gritty details of the type of circuitry involved and the type of semiconductors involved, it's just easier to manufacture CMOS devices than it is, or sensors than it is to, to manufacture CCD sensors. Hence, the massive shift away from CCD for consumer devices towards CMOS. To so the point that today, it will take you a great amount of effort to find a CCD sensor. So everything from our iPhones to our full-frame digital sensors are almost certainly CMOS these days. Another buzzword you may have heard that is worth mentioning is backside illumination. or um, It's also called back-illuminated sensor. So you can have a back-illuminated sensor, but backside illumination is also a term used. And Apple nerds will be familiar with it because it's one of the things... Apple talked about it on stage at a keynote because they made a big deal about switching their iPhone's CMOS sensors to backside-illuminated CMOS sensors. So, what does that mean? Well, I've said that every Pixel contains all of these electronics. Well, electronics get in the way of light. Light doesn't go through electronics very well. And so, a normal CMOS sensor, some of, uh, quite a good chunk of the light actually gets blocked before it hits into the photodetector, and so there's an inefficiency there. Backside illuminated sensors have gone through all sorts of contortions to lay themselves out at a very, very small level in such a way that as much as possible of the electronics happens behind the photosensitive bit of the photodetector, and that way much, much less of the light gets blocked before it gets sensed. So ultimately all you're doing is you're laying things out so that less light gets blocked by the electronics that are inevitably and unavoidably there. That's all backside illumination is. Apart from being a terrible sort of innuendo double entendre kind of thing. So as I said, almost everything you use today is almost certainly a CMOS sensor. And there are other types, but they're just almost never used so really couldn't be bothered talking about them. Uh, and I should say, right, so yes, CCDs are better, but not by huge, huge amounts. It used to be true that a CMOS was like, well, not to be blunt, it was like the, the the poopy little toy cameras were CMOS, and anything halfway decent was CCD. Literally, webcams came in CCD or CMOS variants, but those days are gone, and the difference in quality between the CMOS and the CCDs is just so, so, so much less. So... If you've been around digital photography long enough, you'll have this subconscious shudder every time you hear about CMOS. It's like, Ugh, bleh, I don't want a CMOS sensor. But no, modern CMOS is not like the CMOS of 20 years ago. Uh, no need to go and whether you like it or not, you're using CMOS, so get over it already. Okay, so in the past, we used to have lots, you know, there used to be a real difference between the different types of sensor, your CMOS's and your CCDs but today everything's CMOS so really how your sensor works is kind of irrelevant to your day-to-day photographic life, thankfully it's nice to be in that world, but that's true what isn't irrelevant and never will be is the other thing that really changes between sensors which is how big they are sensor size really affects photography so some general rules of thumb here, right so, with the blindingly obvious, bigger your sensor is, more room it takes up. More room it takes up, bigger your camera body probably needs to be. It probably needs a little bit more power to run. It's just everything just gets bigger. So, if you have a big sensor, you're going to have a big camera body. It's going to be heavy, It's just going to be a more expensive, bigger camera, and that's just the end of it. So, also more, you know, actual sensor to build. So, it's just everything is bigger. Everything's more expensive. And something I really do need to point out is that if your sensor is physically bigger, then the size of the image that has to be projected onto that sensor to be sensed needs to cover the whole sensor. Otherwise, just what value are you getting from all the other bits of the sensor that don't have image projected onto them? So if you need to project a physically bigger image, what you need is a physically bigger lens. So that means that big sensor lenses, sorry, big sensor cameras need big lenses. So again, you can't make a small body if you need to fit a big lens to it. Um, you may also need more of a distance between the bottom of the lens and the sensor f- to get it into focus in time because you have all of this extra width to get of light to get focused. So again, there's another reason to be bigger. And also, if you need to cast a bigger image, you need bigger lenses. Bigger lenses are more glass. Also, the bigger your lens, the more weirdo distortions come into play. So the more work you have to put into your optical drain to counteract all of those distortions. So big sensors equals big lenses equals more expensive lenses. You know, big sensors come at a cost. this financial? Weight? Size? Power consumption? Bigger, you pay for it. Right? However, not all bad. As a general rule, as I've already mentioned, the bigger each pixel is, the better the signal-to-noise ratio because the more photons of light, you know, the bigger you are, the more light hits you. And so bigger pixels tend to have better signal-to-noise ratios, tend to give you nicer, less noisy images. So everyone wants their 12 megapixels or 20 megapixels or, you know, whatever stupidly big size image we all want these days, regardless of the size of our sensor, right? We want 4K video, we don't, care whether it's on a phone or whether it's on a DSLR. We want our 4K video. So we need to have all of those pixels. And if you have a teeny tiny sensor like in your iPhone, or if you have a massive big 5D Mark II or something, if they're the same number of megapixels but the sensors are vastly different size, well then each pixel must be a vastly different size. And so the smaller pixels are going to be... noise is going to be more of an issue. So while we may be counteracting the noise in software, and what also the fancy-past electronics, it's way, way harder to get a good image out of a small sensor than it is to get a good image out of a big sensor. But even leaving those kind of, you know, practical, physical things aside, there are other effects of the size of a sensor that are purely mathematical. So of the smaller your sensor, the deeper your depth of field. In other words the bigger the distance between the nearest thing to you that's in focus and the furthest thing away from you that's in focus. Sometimes that's an advantage, right? If you have a very small sensor, you can oftentimes get away with not focusing at all. Because basically everything that's more than a yard away from the front of the lens is in focus, you know, from a yard away to infinity. And so, particularly early cell phone cameras, they just, they didn't focus at all because their depth of you know the sensor was so tiny that their depth of field was almost infinite. That is advantageous, but it doesn't give you the kind of look we really like, which is where something is in focus and something's not. And so that naturally draws the eye to the thing in focus, and it just you get much more pleasing images of a lot of things if you have a shallower depth of field. And one of the reasons it's so much easier to take a beautiful portrait with a big camera is because a big camera will have a bigger sensor bigger sensors naturally have shallower depth of field so you can get that smooth creamy out of focus background and the nice pin sharp face it's just big sensors give you more control over your depth of field because you then end up basically the sensor isn't limiting isn't forcing you to have this really deep depth of field it's your lens choice that's sort of coming into play. And you're, you know, you can, if you want, use a massive aperture, sorry, a teeny tiny aperture to get you back to a deeper depth of field or not, in which case you have a nice shallow depth of field. So big sensors allow nice shallow depth of field. Small sensors really, really suffer with that. And hence the trend these days for the camera phones to simulate depth of field by using software and or multiple cameras combined. So effectively you have two cameras which are being the information which is combined together to sort of mathematically figure out the shape of the universe and then to post image recording blur things that are known to be close and leave things that are at a certain distance away sharp. Trickery in software. But if you have a big sensor you just get that automatically. Um, The other thing you will get from a bigger sensor is a bigger field of view. So if you measure the focal length of of a lens, so it's actual physical focal length, and you take that lens and you put it in front of a camera with a big sensor, you will get a certain size field of view. And if you then take that identical lens and use it on a small sensor, you will get a smaller field of view. So that means that the kind of lens that gives you, the focal length of the lens to give you the field of view you want is going to be different depending on the lens size. Um, Now, I always expected that changing the sensor size would result in changing the perspective distortions. And it turns out, as I discovered today while researching this show, that that's Completely wrong. I am just flat out wrong on that. The only thing that determines the perspective distortion is the physical distance between the thing you're taking a photograph photograph of and the plane and the sensor plane of the camera. So the distortions are the same. However, you're not going to use the same millimeter of lens to. Well, okay, so if you're going to keep the millimeter of lens the same, then you're not going to stay at the same distance because your field of view is just way, 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 way smaller. So if you're going to keep to a 50 millimeter lens, you're going to have to walk way closer. Once you walk closer, oh, well, now the distortions are complete. The perspective distortion is completely different. Or your other choice is to change the focal length of the lens. Well, okay, so now, although your perspective distortion hasn't changed, you have a different focal length of lens now, which means... That you're you're doing different um, magnification, and so you have all sorts of different effects, including different depth of field. And so, it actually your image is going to look different because you're now working at a different focal length. So the only way to get an exactly the same photograph from a big sen- a big physical sensor and a little physical sensor is to use the identical millimeter of lens and to shoot a you know to shoot one shot with the big with the big sensor and then multiple shots with the little sensor and stitch them together. Effectively stamping the little sensor across the size of the area covered by the big sensor, and hence you're picking up exactly the same light. So I was wrong about that in my understanding until this morning, so there you go. I learned something new. I'm hoping you guys did too. Now, when we start to talk about sensor sizes, it is inevitable that our good friend the Effective Focal Length, going to march into the conversation so what is an EFL and EFL is very closely related to its good friend the crop factor or the CF so because the field of view depends on the combination of a lens's focal length and the size of the sensor a 50 millimeter lens will give you a very different field of view on a big sensor DSLR than it would on a small sensor mirrorless camera so yes, they're both 50 millimetres, but no, the field of view is completely different. Uh, and in practical terms, field of view is actually what we care about, right? What we care about is that how much of the world is in this picture. And we tend to think that the number of millimetres of our lens is a reflection of how much of the world, you know, are we capturing a small little bit zoomed out or a big, little, or a big chunk of the world? And so... Because of an accident of history, because we had fifty mil- or we had thirty five millimeter film for so long, we tend to think in terms of how lenses work on thirty five millimeter film. So we tend to think that a twenty eight millimeter lens is a wide angle lens, a fifty millimeter lens is neutral, it's either zoomed in or zoomed out, and a two hundred millimeter lens is a long lens. But if you get a small sensor, and you put the twenty eight millimeter lens on it, actually it's effectively a massive big telephoto. It's become a really, really long lens, even though it's still 28 millimeters. So the raw millimetres are meaningless in a world where we have lots and lots and lots of different sensor sizes. It was really useful when everyone was shooting with a 35mm film camera, but now that we have all of these different size sensors, the raw focal length of a lens does not tell you how big the field of view is of your photograph. Hence the need for something that captures in one, that capture the field of view in one nice easy number, and for that, we use the effective focal length, or the EFL, which is basically how many millimeters of focal length would I need on a 35 millimeter film camera to get this same field of view? And so it's basically a measure of the lens plus sensor size combination. And so an effective focal length of 28 millimeters is always wide angle, but the actual number of millimeters is going to depend on the size of your sensor. So a little tiny sensor with an effective focal length of 28mm will need a different actual millimeter of lens than a larger sensor would. And this really is a pure fluke of history. 35mm pieces of film were just ubiquitous, and so that's how we got used to thinking, and so that's how we continue to think, and so the EFL is effectively what it would look like if I was still shooting on 35mm film. So you have the effective focal length, and then you have the actual focal length. And the ratio between the two is sort of, you know, captures that relationship for a particular size of sensor. And we gave that a name because it's a really useful number to know. And so we call that ratio the crop factor. And so the crop factor is calculated by taking the diagonal length of a thirty-five millimeter piece of film and dividing it by the diagonal length of the sensor that you want to get the crop factor for. And the reason you want to do that conversion is because once you know the crop factor, you can work out the effective focal length very, very easily. So I want to know the effective focal length of this lens. Okay, tell me the true focal length and the crop factor. I will multiply them together and I will have the effective focal length. So effective focal length is true focal length multiplied by crop factor. So putting that into practical terms, Nikon's sort of consumer DSLR range, their DX range, has a crop factor of 1.6. So if you buy a 30mm lens, how do I know what it behaves like? What is its EFL? The lens is 30mm, what's its EFL? The answer is you take 30 and you multiply it by 1.6. So in other words, on an icon DX sensor, a 30mm lens has an effective focal length of 48mm. I.e. a 30mm lens is effectively a nifty-fifty. Uh, there are lots, right, so... There was a golden age of photography when almost everyone was shooting on 35mm film, so it was easy. (laughs) Those days are gone. Briefly, DSLRs did everything pretty much the same. There was like a 0.1 difference. So um, Canon decided that uh, their APS-C system, which is used for all of their consumer cameras, would use a crop factor of 1.5. Nice easy number. Uh, Nikon, Sony and Pentax thought differently... And so they went with crop factors of 1.6, which in Nikon world is a DX. And I should say that because 35mm was like so universally the thing for so long, we have a name for 35mm, we call it full frame. So if someone says they have a full frame digital camera, what it means is that their sensor is exactly the same size as a 30mm piece of film. And if you're living in Nikon world, that means that your lens will be branded FX. So FX and DX. If you think, why does my, you know, why does a lens say it's an FX lens or a DX lens? If you're in Nikon world, well, FX means it's for Nikon's full frame sensors, and DX means it's for Nikon's crop sensors. AP, the APS-C sensors, the 1.6 crop factor sensor, sensors. Uh, thankfully, these days there is a sort of a, a new standard emerging that's really, really popular, uh, which is Micro Four Thirds. And you might ask yourself, four thirds of what? The sensor is four-thirds of an inch. A micro four-thirds sensor is one and a third inches. Why one and a third inches? Well, it has a really, really convenient crop factor. Two. So the crop factor on a micro four-thirds system is Two. And micro four thirds is great because it's a multi-vendor system. So you know, DX is Nikon and Canon have their EOS ranges and so forth. Whereas micro four-thirds is a cross-vendor system. So lots of different manufacturers make micro four-thirds cameras which can take each other's lenses, which is darn handy. And you know, micro four-thirds, crop factor of two, yes, it's not quite as big of a sensor as you're going to get on a DSLR. But it's a really convenient crop factor. You know something? That's still a pretty darn big sensor compared to an iPhone sensor. And it takes really nice images. So actually, micro four thirds is a very, very interesting compromise between a full frame and a teeny tiny sensor on a camera. So I can see why they're so darn popular. Just purely for context, um, point and shoot cameras tend to have crop factors between four and six. And camera phones like your iPhone will have crop factors of around 7, so between 7 and 8-ish. So that is, I hope, a nice description of how image sensors hang together. So we've gone from our chemistry set of old, where we had salts of mercury or salts of silver, to this electronic menagerie. Um, On the one hand, things have gotten simpler. It's CMOS. There's almost no CCD out there that you or I are going to meet in our day-to-day lives. So in terms of what kind of sensor we have, that's not something we need to care about anymore. We have been liberated from having to worry about that. It is going to be a CMOS sensor, end of story. Unfortunately, we've gone from a day when the size of the sensor was the bit that was easy to figure out because basically all your DSLRs were about the same size... And it wasn't something you thought about to the modern world where there are more different sizes of sensors than you can shake a stick at. So we've stopped caring about how the sensor works, and we started caring about how big the sensor is. And so now the thing we have to stress about when we're going to buy a new camera is what size of sensor do I want? And it's all about trade-offs, right? Bigger sensors will tend to give you less noise, nicer images, better control of your depth of field, the price will be In terms of physical size, you're going to have a bulkier camera to carry around. Your wallet is going to be significantly lighter, though, because bigger frames, you know, bigger sensors mean more expensive cameras, more expensive lenses. So it's all swings and roundabouts. So, you know, you want small and convenient, well, then you're going to have a small sensor, but then you're going to pay a price for it in terms of, you know, light sensitivity and noise and all that kind of stuff. All swings and roundabouts. Um, And it's really not my place to tell you what to buy. So... I'm going to draw a line under there for the very simple reason that my notes have run out. Which means I've said everything I was planning on saying. Speaking of said notes, you will find them over at letstalk.ie, Um so you can read along. There are also links peppered throughout to relevant Wikipedia articles describing the various terms I used, so technical terms. Uh, while you're enjoying the show notes, you will find three no, more than three. You'll find a, a number of large blue buttons under a heading, support the show. Please consider supporting the show. Um, these shows don't use advertisements uh, because well, it was basically a decision I made. I don't like, I want to be able to say whatever the hell I want. And if someone is paying me to say nice things about them, then I can not say whatever the hell I want. And it's just easier for you to know that what I'm saying is my honest and genuine belief if there are no advertisers. I just, I just like the freedom of not advertising. The cost of that is that the only income that covers the costs of running this show are voluntary contributions by you guys. Um, and that is why I really, really appreciate everyone who has ever pitched in in any way whatsoever. Um, because without you, this show wouldn't... Continue to exist because it is a brutal reality that today things are not great financially. And so, if these podcasts weren't self supporting, they would not exist because I am not in a position to spend money to do this at the moment. So, the only reason these shows are on the air is literally because you guys are generous enough, kind enough, and good enough to support me in doing these podcasts. So, a genuine thank you to everyone who has and does support the show. Now, support doesn't have to be financial. Just telling people about it means that there are more listeners. If there are more listeners, then more listeners will choose to contribute financially. So just telling your mates about the podcast, tweeting about the podcast, reviewing the podcast and your podcaster of choice, all of that is really, really helpful and is really, really appreciated. And The other way you can help the show is by giving me feedback, right? Take a couple of minutes, write me a well-thought-out, considered email that tells you, Tells me what you think I'm doing well and what you think I'm doing badly, and assuming you actually put the time and effort into writing a coherent argument, I will be more than interested. I'll not just be happy to receive that; I'll actually be delighted to receive that. Uh, if all you're going to do is write a two-line email that says "Yeah, you suck," yeah, not so much. Save, save yourself the bother because I certainly won't care. Anyway, that's another here and there. So, how do you f- support the show? You can give a one-off contribution on paypal which is a great way to give donations of say more than five dollars because the way paypal's fee system works is it's a percentage or a minimum amount so if you transfer one dollar or one euro as a donation through paypal almost half of it goes to paypal whereas if you give five dollars only about a 20th goes to paypal and so 19 20 make their way to helping support the show Uh, So if you want to give small dollar amounts, there's a solution for that. And it's not PayPal, it's Patreon. And so the way Patreon works is you sign up and you pledge a certain amount for every show I put out. I have one Patreon to cover the Apple and photography shows, so there are going to be exactly two shows every month. And so if you would like to give me $2 a month, pledge $1. You get the idea. Divide by two. There are also affiliate links to services that I use to host this podcast. So there is... Um, a company that do virtual machines, cloud hosting basically, called DigitalOcean. If you need cloud hosting and you use that link, then you get some credit towards your hosting bill and I get some credit towards my hosting bill. Just visiting the link does nothing. You actually have to buy something, which means it's only of interest to people who need cloud hosting. And in a very, very similar vein, there's a link to Hover, who are a domain registrar. And again, if you use that link in that case, I'm the only one who gets anything from Hovering Free. afraid you don't rather than feeling happy about supporting the show. But again, it only happens when you actually buy something. So unless you need a domain name, there's no point in clicking under those two links. Anyway, I've prattled on for long enough. Genuine thank you again to everyone who makes it possible for me to continue to do these shows. And, you know, get out there, have fun, enjoy your photography. Uh, so until next time, happy snapping! Listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, I'm Jake Adams. And I'm Peter Searle. And together, we are NanoBipes. All right. A brand new channel with the express purpose of bringing fun and variety to your computer, TV, smartphone, or anywhere else. We've been making content in different forms on this site for years now. But we figured now was as good a time as any to really knuckle in and do something a bit more focused. But Jake? Yeah, B. What kind of videos can you expect to watch here? On this channel, you can find lots of things, like comedy. Horror. Parody. Drama. And even action. Whoa, now that's some fun stuff you got going on there. That's right, Jake. And we have all of that and more So come on in and take a look. I'm Jake. And I'm Peter. And together we are nanobytes. For you. Yeah, that's good. I don't... I don't...